Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Hope. It's a word that we don't throw around lightly, right? As we start a new year, we're taking a look at projects that are supposed to bring jobs and hope to communities here in Appalachia. We'll hear about a program that teaches people how to run their own farm as a business. You know, if I want to sell 20 pounds, how do I figure out the number of plants I need? I didn't know how to do that. So this was a good program for that. These projects promise a lot, so we'll follow up to see if they can deliver. I definitely learned not to put all my eggs in one basket, that's for sure. <laughs> we pretty much put all our eggs in this basket and the basket got knocked off the table. We're exploring the tough landscape of economic development inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. It's a new year, and many of us are hoping that it'll be a better one. Vaccines could bring a bit of normalcy back to our lives, but we do have a lot of work to bring jobs back to our country. And let's be real, Appalachia was already hurting, and the pandemic was just another blow. But there have also been a number of projects over the years trying to help, and in some ways, they have. So on today's show, we're peering out on the economic landscape without rose-colored glasses. We begin with Lavender. Back in early 2018, we reported on an economic development project funded in part by a $1 million grant from the Appalachian Regional Commission. The ARC is the federal agency tasked with bringing economic development back to Appalachia. So this Lavender project was ambitious to grow lavender on former strip mines in West Virginia, and to employ former miners and veterans. After the story aired, we heard from students involved in the program who felt misled by the promises of the project, called green mining. Roxy Todd visited the site to find out what happened, in a story we originally aired later in 2018. First, some background. Back in 2014, then-West Virginia Governor Earl Ray Tomlin asked the West Virginia Regional Technology Park to come up with some ideas that could help generate new jobs for displaced coal miners in southern West Virginia. The idea that the CEO of the technology park, Rusty Krusalak, had was to grow lavender on former strip mines. The project for the green mining project was one way that we thought that we could help take displaced mine workers and instead of a uh, mining for coal, perhaps work on mine reclamation. In 2016, the project was awarded grants through the Benedum Foundation, then the Appalachian Regional Commission, to fund the first couple of years of the green mining program. In the interest of full disclosure, both of these organizations have also provided funding to West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Seventeen other companies also donated time and resources toward the first phase of the Lavender Project. The Technology Park offered classes to teach people how to grow lavender, and they paid the students a $10 an hour stipend to attend classes. The project attracted 47 students in 2017, including several from out of state. So we sold everything we owned, packed up our little car, drove nine hours to West Virginia. <laughs> Veterans Deborah and her husband Scott Ritchie moved to West Virginia from Florida with their daughter because they heard about the green mining program. Came here to be lavender farmers. We were supposed to get a deal to where once we graduate the school, they were supposed to give each vet, because both of us are vets, they're supposed to give each vet two acres of land. 
and we went to the school, graduated the school, and went to go talk about the land, and nothing. No call back, no email return, nothing. They say they were told that following the six-week course, they would have the option of growing lavender on a mine site to help raise some supplemental income. But that didn't happen. I definitely learned not to put all my eggs in one basket, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. We pretty much put all our eggs in this basket, and the basket got knocked off the table. Other students we spoke to said they had also been led to believe that they would be offered land to grow lavender on after their six-week training course. Another veteran, Amber Stanley, lives just outside Charleston. She has a small garden, some chickens, and was looking forward to the opportunity to grow lavender up on the mine site. Now I'm feeling um, pretty misled, and I also feel a little bit exploited. So what happened? The project's main organizer, Rusty Krusilak, says the grant money simply ran out. They couldn't pay their staff anymore, so they couldn't continue the next phase of the project. I asked him what about the students who say they're disappointed, people like Amber, Scott, and Deborah. We apologize if, the, if that's the, the impression. We weren't aware of that, but the, uh, we, we certainly reached out in the springtime to as many people as we could but uh, we will do everything we can to rectify that in the future. An hour after we recorded this interview with Krusalak, a volunteer with the Green Mining Project did send an email to the former students asking if they would want to be a part of a new phase of their project, a lavender growing cooperative. The students from last year's class we talked to all said it was the first time they had heard from the program in seven months. The idea behind the cooperative, in part, is to get former students to help maintain the existing lavender fields as volunteers. I visited the mine site to see how the plants had fared through the winter. It's pretty quiet up here on the mine site. Not a lot of people. Black bear crossed in front of our path earlier down below on the road. And we have some bullfrogs here in a little pond with cattails. Not far from the cattail pond, the gray moonscape soil now has some purple growing on it. Nearly a year since I was here last, small plants of English and French varieties of lavender dot the rocky fields. A little over 3,000 of the lavender plants survived the winter. Krusalok says that's about half of what they planted last year. A few volunteers, and at least one person who's been paid part-time, has been up here in the past few months weeding the fields. Most of that weeding work has been done by Lori Bailey. She heard about the Lavender Project from a news story and reached out to see how she could get involved. I was like, that is so cool. I mean, I just thought it was the greatest thing. Because there's so much land that's had mountaintop removal, and I just think it's great that I'm trying to do something to make that look beautiful again. But without Bailey and a handful of volunteers up here, the lavender plants might have been overtaken by weeds. That's still a risk if they don't find a way to keep the volunteers engaged or figure out how to pay people to keep maintaining these fields. The last thing you want to do is go out and plant 2,000, 10,000 acres and then not have anybody to work it or not have anybody take care of it. This is from an interview we recorded last year with one of the project's main organizers, Marina Sawyer. If we don't have the you know, the workforce or the students coming out to do that kind of work, then you end up losing valuable plants. And that we're not about that either. But a few months after this interview, Sawyer and the other staff were all let go because they were only contracted to work on a one-year grant, and the funding ran out. 
We reached out to the Appalachian Regional Commission, which funded the project last year, to ask them if they're happy with the project's outcomes. They didn't want to do an interview, but Wendy Wasserman, Director of Communications, sent the following statement. This project proves that Appalachia's coal-impacted communities are well-positioned for innovative economic development. The green mining team identified an asset, did the research, and literally got their hands dirty. Now a series of new value-added products using Appalachian-grown lavender are headed to market, end quote. Wasserman says the project was turned down for a second round of funding from the ARC because so many other projects applied for funding, and the application process was incredibly competitive this year. Meanwhile, Rusty Krusalak says that in a few years, he hopes these fields of lavender will be producing enough essential oil that they can earn some income for the project. Well, most of our revenue down the road is going to be using shared uh, processes once we get oil production, we're going to use the shared revenues to make the the whole foundation self-sustaining. And the technology park does have the equipment and the chemical expertise to produce that oil. But they won't be producing very much oil anytime soon, not for at least another year or two, until the lavender plants are big enough. So in the meantime, how will the project support itself, maintain the fields of lavender, Krusalak says although they didn't receive a second year of funding from the ARC's Power Plus program, he says they are going to try again later this fall. And, he says, the handful of volunteers will help keep it going. At this time, there are about five students still involved helping see the project grow. Not among them is Deborah and Scott Ritchie, who say they just don't know if they have trust in the program anymore. So for me, this was a new chapter, new leaf a new adventure, and I just got shot down. And it kind of put me back to that, well, why am I even trying thought process? So I was, I was angry. I was real angry and disappointed. She says it was nice to see the recent email that the project hasn't gone completely underground, but they don't have time to spend volunteering on the mine site, not at this time anyway. At this point, the Richies are just struggling to pay their own bills. Deborah got a job at a gas station, and her husband Scott is still looking for a job. They say they aren't sure if they'll stay in West Virginia or if they plan to leave the state in search of work. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Roxy originally reported that story back in 2018. We just reached out again to the West Virginia Regional Technology Park. The new CEO says he isn't sure if any lavender plants are still alive on the mine site. He says when the grant money ran out, they stopped the project. And the lavender cooperative that Roxy mentioned in that story, well, it doesn't exist anymore. But there is another group made of some of the same people now growing lavender in Boone County, West Virginia. They call themselves the Appalachian Botanical Company. They hope to employ a group of people in the coming years to produce lavender for essential oils. We're planning to follow up with that group next spring. We're going to stay with this theme for a minute. Can apples grow on an abandoned mine site? That's Roxy's next question. She asked the West Virginia National Guard since they're spending more than $5 million to grow apples. 
Back in 2018, Roxy traveled to Nicholas County, West Virginia, to find out how the project was going. $30 million was given to West Virginia in 2016 to invest in economic development projects across the state. The money came from the 2015 Omnibus Federal Spending Bill passed by Congress, and there was a catch to this money. Groups would have to build their projects on former abandoned mine land sites. The idea was partly to spur new jobs in coal country, but also to speed up reclamation of mine sites. Some of the funding went to develop industrial parks, and others went to agricultural projects, like this one, managed by the West Virginia National Guard. Sergeant Major Daryl Sears walks me up a hillside. We're in a small community called Muddlety in Nicholas County. Behind an electric fence, rows of young apple trees are growing as far as my eyes can see. The majority of this AML property up here, you can plant the fruit trees on. Some of it needs a little bit of help in, in the sign of lime and fertilizer and balance to the pH, but honestly, almost every soil in West Virginia does. These 3,000 trees are expected to live about 30 years. They aren't producing many apples yet. They're only two years old. And they're tiny, a type of dwarf apple tree that will need to be trellised. There are different varieties, but most are a type of apple that was developed in West Virginia, the famous Golden Delicious. Sergeant Sears says they're sweet, and that makes them great not only for eating, but has also attracted a major private investor, a producer of apple juice and apple vinegar. So we already have a potential partner to develop further, but it hasn't been anything official. If they don't come, somebody else will. If that type of private investment pans out, this orchard could eventually provide about 400 jobs and $1.5 million in tax revenue for the state, according to an economic impact study done by West Virginia University. Sears and nine other employees work at this orchard now. By the end of next year, he says they'll have planted 250,000 trees on this site. But not everyone is convinced this plan is the best scenario. Commissioner of the West Virginia Department of Agriculture, Kent Leonhardt, says he'd love to see the National Guard's project succeed, but he has questions about their approach. Why did they choose juicing apples uh, when juicing apples are the lowest value of an apple that there is out there? Why aren't we going after table apples and a processing plant where we can cut them up into the sizes that our, our youth need in our schools? Using some of the apples for eating is still part of the National Guard's plan, but they're hoping that by bringing in a larger company, the project will have more long-term investment beyond the current grant cycle, which ends next year. Another question Commissioner Leonhardt has is, why is the National Guard investing in agriculture? Adjutant General Hoyer, the man in charge of the West Virginia National Guard, says their job is not only to deal with natural disasters— but also to help find ways to solve economic and environmental challenges. We as a state have to start thinking a little bit differently. And that includes looking beyond coal for ways to use the land that's been left behind by years of mining. I think our role from a guard perspective is to take that property and turn it into something for West Virginia's future. But is a mine site really a suitable place to grow an apple orchard? And it all depends on the, the type of soil that you've got and its productivity potential. This is Jeff Skousen, a professor of soil science at West Virginia University and an expert in reclamation of mine sites. He estimates there are about 500 to 600,000 acres of abandoned mine land sites in West Virginia. Some have been reclaimed or cleaned up. Others have not. 
And I would guess that probably a fourth of that area might be suitable for farming. Most of this abandoned mine land is still owned by mine companies or private landowners. But it could be developed into a post-mining industry, like growing apples, if the soil is free of contaminants and if there are enough nutrients to support farming. Skousen helped the National Guard select the site for their Nicholas County orchard, and he tested the soil. These soils are not toxic. There's nothing wrong with them. They're just um, fairly coarse, and by that I mean they're rocky. And so that means that they don't, have, they don't hold as much water and hold as many nutrients. He advised the Guard to add more potting soil to the dirt to give more nutrients and to help break up the tough clay. He says he's hopeful the trees will continue to thrive and produce, but it will be a few more years till they'll know for sure if they were successful. But an earlier apple tree project the National Guard was involved in was not. I went to Clay County to have a look at the apple trees. None of them are alive. It's a few sticks sticking out of the ground. The ground itself is really dry and arid. This is a former mine site, so it's pretty dry here. This project was headed up by a nonprofit called the Central Appalachia Empowerment Zone, and the West Virginia National Guard helped plant all the trees in 2015. I asked General Hoyer about this earlier project. The follow-up on those trees is not like the follow-up in the orchard that we have at Muddle Tea. You don't think it's an indication of the poor soil quality? No, no. I think it, it was a matter of they just didn't have the folks to care for the trees. So I think it's two completely different uh, circumstances. According to the State Department of Environmental Protection, the site where these apples were planted was mined by Greendale Coal, which had its permits revoked in the late 80s. The agency says reclamation was later done on the soil, but there is an issue with acid mine drainage. It's not exactly clear if any of these environmental issues had anything to do with why the apple trees died. The organization that headed up this project, the Central Appalachia Empowerment Zone's executive director, Connie Lupardis, didn't want to do a recorded interview about this project. She says she was told by the DEP that the site would be appropriate to grow apples, and they did grow initially. She says they only received a little more than $20,000 for this pilot project, and if she had to do it all over again, she would make sure she has workers in place to care for the trees once they're growing. I asked Jess Skousen, the soil scientist, if he knows anything about the first apple project and why he thinks the apple trees in Clay County died. He hasn't been to that site or tested the soil, but he says that, generally speaking, if the reclamation on a mine site wasn't completed, then it's probably not the ideal location to grow apple trees. So we, we do have to be careful about sites like that. For multiple reasons, Skousen says, the second orchard location in Muddlety is probably better suited for growing apples. That site was last mined in 1969, and though there is still some reclamation needed on the property, he's hopeful that the soil and water quality will be able to support an orchard. The challenges in the first pilot project in Clay County did help the National Guard realize they needed some help. So they consulted with some fruit researchers at the Appalachia Fruit Research Station in Kearneysville, West Virginia. They're working with the Guard to help find the apple varieties that grow the best on the Muddle Tea site. They're also helping them grow some other fruit on this location, says Chris Dardirk, one of the scientists. In our stone fruits, we have uh, a trait we call super sweet, and these are nectarines 
and peaches that have just tremendous flavor profiles. And they're also working on finding a way to help the National Guard grow pears, peaches, nectarines, plums, and even a kiwi variety that was developed specifically for West Virginia. I admit that the enchantment of growing these exotic fruits on a former mine site does sound enticing. Still, I can't help but wonder, are these projects just the byproduct of the coal industry and people who support coal? Are they just trying to prove these lands aren't completely wasted? I posed the question to Jeff Skousen. No, I understand. I think you're trying to say, you know, is it people like me that are trying to justify uh, continuing to destroy the environment to get coal out? And then, yes, there is a post-mining land use that we can develop and that we can move on and that these have value. He says that he looks at the positive side of all this, that just 40 years ago, mining companies were doing much more damage to the environment without much work being done to reclaim their mine sites. Convincing coal companies to do a better job has taken a lot of work and federal regulation. Back up at the Muddlety site, Sergeant Sears says another generation from now, apples and other fruit trees could be one of the things covering these hillsides. And he says he does think this project will be more successful than the Clay County project. And as far as them doing better here than over there, I mean, it's just a matter of testing. I mean, to see, you don't know until you get them going. But they appear at this point, and you'll be able to see when you go up here, they're doing quite well here. He says in about four years, we'll know for sure. That's when the 250,000 trees they're planting for this pilot project are expected to start producing apples. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd in Muddle Tea, West Virginia. We reached back out to the West Virginia National Guard recently, and to be fair, they are really busy. They don't have any updates on apple trees because, well, COVID. What with helping people get free testing, distributing vaccines, and disinfecting facilities everywhere, the Apple Project hasn't been the top priority. When everything's a little more normal, we hope to check back in later on the Apple Project. There are many different projects that are trying to promote economic development through farming. But as we've just heard, it's really tough. Next, we'll hear about a project that is working to connect more farmers in West Virginia with customers throughout the state. Like the Lavender Project that we heard about earlier, Sprouting Farms has received federal dollars through the Appalachian Regional Commission. Back in 2018, reporter Brittany Patterson went to visit Sprouting Farms in Talcott, West Virginia, to learn how their project was going. It's about 8 a.m. on a recent Monday morning, as the rising sun burns off the low-hanging fog and fishermen haul in their morning catches from the Greenbrier River. At Sprouting Farms, the day is well underway. Produce has been harvested and safely stored in a giant refrigerator. Employees are packaging cherry tomatoes, activities you might find at any of the farms that dot the Greenbrier Valley. But while the daily tasks are handled at this production-scale vegetable farm, the crux of Sprouting Farms' mission goes beyond the fields at hand. So I feel like, you know, the demand is there. I've never really had that issue. It's just how do we get 
supply and demand to line up and how do we get the infrastructure in the middle to sort of pull it all together. Sprouting Farms Project Director Fritz Bettner takes me on a tour of the 83-acre farm. The goal of this project is to break down barriers, physical, financial, and market-based, so farmers can be successful in West Virginia. While no one thought it would be simple, over the last year, the project has learned a lot of lessons. We still have a long way to go in making, in sort of making that happen. But what if you want to be a farmer, but you don't know how? I'm Ruby Daniels, and I go by Ruby D. Beckley resident Ruby Daniels came to Sprouting Farms in March to participate in the project's apprenticeship program. Daniels' family history is steeped in farming. Her great-grandfather was a slave who came to West Virginia to cut coal out of the seams before that job was done by machine. After he was injured, the family ran an orchard and a restaurant in the area. Daniels has a master's degree in science and therapeutic herbalism, and owning her own farm has long been a dream. But I didn't know how to figure out the numbers, like, how do I figure out if I need 20, you know, if I want to sell 20 pounds, how do I figure out the number of plants I need? I didn't know how to do that. So this was a good program for that. She shows me some of the things she has planted in the 200 square foot high tunnel she shares. So that's comfrey right there, bee balm. So I'll put some more in there. These are my green beans that I just harvested. So some more coming out. And these are field peas. And there, see the, that's the pea. And that's what they, they'll start filling with, uh, like, beans. She makes herbal teas and tinctures with the herbs she grows and says Sprouting Farms has given her the tools she needs to expand. This is like a good farm for teaching an apprentice or somebody that doesn't know about farming because you can see things and everybody does farming different. Bettner, the project manager of Sprouting Farms, says by running their own production farm, they can workshop the best ways to grow on a larger scale in West Virginia, which doesn't have big swaths of flat land like the Midwest or California. Andy says the farmers who rent or train here also benefit from having the staff and tools on site. And so one day I could say, you know, rent two greenhouses and here's an acre and you can make a living doing it. The hope would be one day that you, that, that would be possible. Not only like you can do that, but here's exactly what, you know, you could grow right now in order to do that. And we get to offer that assistance. In 2017, Sprouting Farms received a $1.5 million grant from the Appalachian Regional Commission. The project was an inaugural recipient of ARC's Power Initiative, which provides federal dollars to coal-impacted communities. The goal is to diversify and help these economies. Coal mining isn't common here in Summers County, unlike in many southern counties in the state. But the region has long supported the coal fields and timber camps by producing food for hungry workers. Today, coal trains run right alongside the farm three to four times per day, a striking reminder of the state's long history with extractive industries. But while the ARC grant has helped launch Sprouting Farms, Bettner says there's still a big obstacle before agriculture is a viable economy of scale here. But we know that here, the markets are a challenge. That's true for small farmers across the country, says Todd Schmidt, associate professor at Cornell University, who studies agribusiness development in rural communities. The market access issue, particularly in thinking about collaborative marketing operations, cooperatives, food hubs, um, is something that is that is providing um, beneficial 
uh, to small-scale producers. Food hubs are a centralized location where farmers can bring their food for processing and to go to market. Schmidt says across the country, food hubs are expanding as more restaurants, grocery stores, and other institutions seek more local food because increasingly their customers ask for it. And food hubs can hugely benefit small farmers, of which West Virginia has many. The state leads the nation in small farms. Of the more than 20,000 farms here, 97% of them are considered small, and 93% are family-owned, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But making a full-time living off farming alone isn't feasible for most small farmers. Most vegetable farmers in West Virginia bring in less than $50,000 a year. Once expenses are accounted for, it's hardly a good living. Selling more produce or higher-value produce to restaurants or grocery stores could help. Food hubs become the middlemen, but in a good way. Farmers tell the hub what they have to sell. The hub aggregates it and delivers it to buyers. A restaurant may be getting squash from four different farms, but it's delivered by just one entity, the hub. Having access to a food hub has been a benefit to Roger Dolan, who owns the Wild Bean in downtown Lewisburg. The hip coffee shop also serves vegetarian fare and does a rockin' trade in smoothies. We usually go through about 15 pounds of mixed greens a week. Um, we get spinach, tomatoes, green peppers, cucumbers, lots of kale, which we use in our green smoothies and salads and make soups with. Dolan has always tried to source as much of the produce the wild bean uses locally, but says it was hard juggling communications with multiple farms to get what he needed. Then he found a food hub. He says, sure. Sometimes there are challenges, but overall, it's a boom to business to be able to advertise that they use local food. We're putting money right back into our local economy by supporting local farmers that are going to come to our shop and spend their money. You know, it's just like a cycle. We're each helping each other out. And this fall, the two largest food hubs in the southern and eastern portions of West Virginia are converging. We're trying to achieve some economies of scale here, and hopefully to get West Virginia agriculture products into bigger markets. Brandon Dennison is the founder of the Coalfield Development Corporation, which runs a farmer training program called Refresh Appalachia. Its food hub in southern West Virginia will join Sprouting Farms's to become the Turnrow Appalachian Farm Collective. That means more local food will be available to buyers on a much larger scale. The West Virginia Department of Agriculture estimates West Virginians consume $8 billion worth of food annually, but the state only produces $800 million. If this food hub can boost the amount of locally produced food bought by West Virginians by just a few percentage points, it could have big returns, says Jim Matson, an agricultural economist based in South Carolina. We're not trying to replace every amount of food that comes in there with local food in most cases. We're just trying to add a little bit to it that can help to support these local families, add to local communities. Back at the farm, Bettner and I climbed to the top of a hill to get the bird's eye view of sprouting farms. As we look out over the land, he reflects on the work they've accomplished so far. I mean, I'm happy with the progress that we've made, absolutely, what we've been able to accomplish. Um, But also, there's like an extremely long way to go. Bettner says as the project goes into its second year, it does so with more data and feedback on what has worked so far and what hasn't. But one thing he doesn't question is people's appetite for more local food. Sort of our goal is not just to make this site work, but like make the whole you know, regional food system work. And we have lots of farmers and partners that are very interested in seeing that happen. 
Sprouting Farms has two more years of federal funding from the ARC for the first phase of their project. They're hoping that in the meantime, they can find a way to be more self-sustaining, bringing a profit to their organization to continue after the grant runs out. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Brittany Patterson in Talcott, West Virginia. Brittany originally reported that story back in 2018. Sprouting Farms has grown a lot in the past several years. As part of a collaborative project with other organizations, they've been selling more food through their online site called Turnrow. This is where customers can purchase food directly from farmers and get the food delivered to their town the following week. And during the pandemic, Turnrow has experienced some changes. Here's one of the managers, April Koenig. Our demand has never been higher across the state. The pandemic has absolutely highlighted, you know, how badly the West Virginia economy and food sector like needs this. At the onset of the pandemic this past March, they went from having about 40 customers a week to 200. And their sales basically doubled. Nearly $600,000 of local foods were purchased on the Turnrow Marketplace in 2020. April's update was on behalf of Sprouting Farms in Turnrow as part of a recent online event organized by the West Virginia Community Development Hub. They do a lot of work to connect initiatives statewide. The Hub has spent over a decade researching how groups in the region are doing in their economic development projects. And they found that many one-off federal investments prove largely, well, unsustainable. But when people collaborate, they tend to be more successful long-term. So now they're encouraging groups and local governments to work together. Back in 2018, Roxy Todd went to visit with the Hub's executive director, Stephanie Tyree. She points to Princeton, West Virginia, in Mercer County as a town where that approach has worked. So for the last 10 or more years, there's been a project in Princeton called the Princeton Renaissance Project that's been focused on revitalizing their downtown Main Street, bringing in new businesses to vacant buildings, and to growing an arts community. They've invested in that as one of the transition opportunities for their region. But they also recognize that they have to bring in all new types of businesses. So they're really looking at how do they layer in all types of potential industries while really concentrating on this arts as a transformational impact. So what about outside West Virginia? Are there examples that you've seen that might help us think about what's next here in West Virginia? So a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to travel with a group of leaders from Central Appalachia, and we went and visited coal mining regions in Germany and looked at how economic transition had been undertaken there. There were some interesting models that I saw over there, some of which I think are relevant to West Virginia, and some of which gave me good lessons about the increased investment that we're going to need in order to really help communities grow and transform um, in the state. In the rural region, there has been a successful transition from the coal economy, and the coal mining in that region has mostly stopped. And they had a three-part way of moving forward and diversifying their economy. First, they had significant investment from public and private sectors. So they had almost $20 million invested in one town that we were in from the public sector. 
and $100 million invested from the private sector. So that's a level of investment we're talking about if that much money was invested in a town like Charleston, you know, or a town like Morgantown. Um, what we see right now is that there is investment coming into the region, but it is in no way at that level. Here in West Virginia, there's investment, but it's not at the level that you saw in Germany. Yeah, we're seeing investment coming into West Virginia, into central Appalachia, and that investment is important and needed and can lead to transformations, but it's not at the level that they had in Germany, and I think it's not at the level that we need and that we should expect to see in order to move forward our economy. They also had a commitment to transitioning the people working in the industry. And so this is something that is about real leadership. So they made a commitment that every miner was moved into a job, a new job or into retirement. And that's, I think if you had that kind of commitment to an industry that's going through a transition, that would have a transformational impact on how people feel about that transition. But the third thing, and an equally critical thing, was that they really recognize that it's a cultural shift too. And so there was leadership around being willing to talk about how the region traditionally was seen as a certain thing and was under transition and that was okay. And people felt like they could undertake that transition. There was leadership from elected officials in bringing community members together in an engagement process to talk about what that future looked like and what they wanted to build together. And so that kind of brings us to state-sponsored programs. Let's talk about what the legislature could do this session. So there's a lot of issues that the legislature could work on that would be very impactful for community development and for the communities that we work on. One of the key issues that we see as a need and a challenge in every single community in West Virginia is vacant and dilapidated buildings. It's also an issue where we have seen bipartisan support in the legislature and we've seen leadership um, over multiple years from both parties in both chambers. So there's a real commitment, I think, to address this challenge, but it's a multi-layered challenge that's going to take a level of energy and uh, leadership that it hasn't yet received. Looking at tax policy around dilapidated buildings isn't always the most exciting or interesting topic, and so it sometimes sort of falls under the radar during the legislative session, but we think it is a topic and an issue that could have a transformational impact on communities. There's a group that we work with called the Abandoned Properties Coalition that each year puts forward a series of proposals on how the legislature can address abandoned dilapidated properties. So I would hope that the legislature would look into those policies this year and take some leadership on the issue. Again, that was Stephanie Tyree, Executive Director for the West Virginia Community Development Hub. She was speaking with Roxy Todd back in 2018. Next, we'll hear from one more project here in Appalachia trying to use federal dollars to bring more jobs to our region. Through ATV Tourism. We'll take a ride along the Hatfield and McCoy ATV trail system. I'm Caitlin Tan. You're inside Appalachia. We'll be right back.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Today on Inside Appalachia, we're taking a look back at several of the stories we've reported over the years that explore economic development initiatives. How successful are they? And do they create actual good-paying jobs? Economic development in Appalachia was challenging before the pandemic, and in some ways, it's even harder now. Although we did hear earlier how some local farm projects have seen an increase in customers in the past year. Another industry that saw an increase? Outdoor ATV tourism. The Hatfield and McCoy Trails in southern West Virginia is another recipient of some federal investment. Let's listen to a story we aired in 2019. Emily Allen reports. On a Thursday morning at the Devil Ants Hatfield gravesite in Logan County, most people wouldn't expect to find anything other than gravestones with the last name Hatfield. Renee Simons and Eric Hartchuk from Texas hop off their four-wheeler to check out a dignified statue of Devil Ants himself. We um, got to man, what's today, Thursday? Yeah. We got to man Wednesday and... Um, They're here for more than just West Virginia history. Simon says they saw a sign for the gravesite while riding the nearby Hatfield-McCoy trail system. It's a network of wooded, mountainous routes for ATV riding in southern West Virginia. Where's that? It's, um... In Texas, it's just, um, mud. (laughs) You know, there's no hills, there's no... Nothing like up here, and the colors up here are so pretty. The trails are run by the Hatfield-McCoy Regional Recreation Authority. The group's executive director, Jeffrey Lusk, says the group chose to use the Hatfield-McCoy name based on an infamous feud of the late 1800s between two regional families. We've taken what was maybe otherwise looked as a negative, you know, one of the largest family feuds in the country, and turned it into a positive, turned it into, you know, the most successful all-terrain vehicle trail system in the eastern U.S., According to Lusk, the state sold roughly 50,000 permits to use the trails last year. This year, he anticipates the state will have sold 55,000. 85% will be sold to out-of-state riders. This influx of tourists, many of whom don't know much about the state, could mean big bucks for southern communities that have traditionally relied on a waning coal industry. In 2014, a Marshall University study showed tourists coming to use the Hatfield-McCoy trails spent around $22 million on local businesses in 2013. Lusk expects the number will double when Marshall University completes a new economic impact study in 2020. Right now, there are trailheads open in five southern counties. Mercer, McDowell, Wyoming, Mingo, and Logan. You have to have enough property to do it. You have to have willing landowners. You you have to have all the pieces have to line up just perfect to get one of these open. Thusly why, you know, after 19 years, you only have eight systems and not 19. You can't build one of these every year. But opening a trailhead isn't the automatic key to success. Lusk says communities need to match his organization's investment with local lodging and business development. The city of Welch in McDowell County has recently set out to become the most ATV-friendly community in West Virginia. It's not an industry that we ever 
suspected that we would have, but now it's here and we need to better facilitate what's needed for these tourists. That's Jason Grubb, the recently hired business development specialist for the city of Welch. Anywhere you go in this area, there's not a weekend that you don't come to Welch that you don't see ATVs running all over the highways, all over the mountains, at every local restaurant, at every place you could imagine. Uh, A lot of people consider that they may be the salvation for southern West Virginia by way of tourism. Grubb says Welch started on its journey about two years ago when it passed an ordinance allowing ATVs on public roads. Many communities along the Hatfield-McCoy trails have done the same. Grubb says continued success relies on Welch connecting with its business community. We need more restaurants here in order to, uh, to facilitate places for them to eat, places for entertainment. We need more lodging in the area. It's something we've not had a lot of in the past. It used to, in the 60s and 70s, when coal was popular, there's a lot more lodging in the area. These days there's not as much, but that's what we need more of in order to be able to accommodate the the number of people that come in. It's a lot of residential areas, but not a lot of lodging for tourism. Half an hour away in Pineville, Wyoming County, entrepreneurs left and right are opening cabins and homes to tourists with trail riding equipment. That includes Jill Hendricks. For the last eight and a half years, she's owned the Ole Jose Mexican Grill and Sports Bar. She estimates tourists make up more than half of her daily business during the six to eight months when they're most active. You know, as the riders were coming in, we just started being, um, you know, realizing that there was such a need for lodging. Hendricks has three houses, two of which are duplex models for visiting ATV riders in need of a place to stay. As a real estate agent, she says she has even sold a few vacation homes to out-of-staters. We're probably, in our little county, we may be selling four or five, maybe six a year, us personally. Tourists have definitely helped buoy the local economy with their spending. But Hendrick says having outsiders come into these small towns can boost morale within the community. Sometimes when, when you've lived in a place and been raised there, I think you become complacent and also sometimes you can become a little negative and then you see all these people coming in that are so positive and then you start looking around and going wait a minute maybe it is a pretty cool place to live. The Hatfield McCoy Trails Regional Recreation Authority plans to open trailheads in two more southern counties this spring. Director Lusk says the authority is working to develop a second trail system spanning five more counties further north. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Emily Allen. Emily is a Report for America Corps fellow. The Hatfield and McCoy ATV trail system received a federal grant from the Appalachian Regional Commission. That's the same funding agency that's provided grants to several of the projects we heard about today in our show. The ARC is a federal agency that began over 50 years ago during the War on Poverty. Its sole purpose was, and still is, to rebuild Appalachia's economy. In 2015, the Obama administration pushed the agency to add a new funding program called the Power Initiative. Instead of awarding funds to state governments, power grants go directly to local organizations in the region. This year, the ARC invested about $160 million in Appalachia. For some, the funding has provided a lifeline and an opportunity to get creative and innovative. Grant applications for the ARC's Power Initiative are normally accepted each March. 
We've posted a link where you can learn more on our website, wvpublic.org. One thing the pandemic has shown is just how vulnerable working families are. People living paycheck to paycheck don't have safety nets. We plan to stay with this issue in the months ahead. We'd love to hear your ideas about how to make Appalachia's economy stronger. How are you? How's your family? And how's your community doing? Don't be a stranger. Write to us. We're at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Music in today's show was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Jake Sheps, Strictly Clean and Decent, Little Sparrow, Dog and Gun, and Hazel Dickens. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Our associate producer is Eric Douglas. Glennis Board edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us online on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. You can also address your letters to Inside Appalachia at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. If you'd like to listen to any part of this episode again, don't forget you can subscribe or download all of our stories at wvpublic.org. And you can find Inside Appalachia on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Caitlin Tan. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.